Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, I'm Helen. And I'm Stephen. And welcome to this week's New Statesman podcast. In which we talk about schools. With Laura McInerney, former editor of Schools Week. We talk about reads. With each other. And the future of the Labour Party. And with everybody else who's ever asked us a question, because that's always what's come up. Stephen, do we have to talk about reads? We do have to talk about reads. So subscribers to the NS Paywall get an extra email from me called Week Ahead, which talks about what's on in cinemas, what's coming out in books, and also has a kind of brief bit about the week to come in politics. So this week had a, a hilarious a prediction which has aged incredibly badly, in which I went, you know, both parties enter this week, emerge in a row over racism in their ranks, but the conservative one is going to dominate more this week. Because, and I still think that this theory here was sound, Mm -hmm. because essentially the stakes of the Corbyn row are non-existent. Jeremy Corbyn will continue to be the hegemonic leader of the Labour Party. Mm -hmm. He will continue to be the person who, unless he, you know, dies or like decides he wants to join some weird religion which doesn't speak to anyone, is going to lead Labour into the next election and will have an incredible amount of freedom as much as a Labour leader ever has uh, within the kind of limited constitutional constraints than a Labour leader has within their own party to do what he likes. Whereas the Islamophobia burqa row stuff with Boris Johnson could spiral into a situation in which there is a sudden conservative leadership election over Boris Johnson's column. Now, I still think that was essentially true. However, Instead, the males wreathed. But that's partly because what I assumed would happen is that the leader's office would effectively go, okay, there are pictures, so we're just going to... The jig's up. The jig's up. So for people who have mercifully been, I don't know, in a coma for the last week, Corbyn went to Tunisia in 2014. He wrote an article about it in the Morning Star at the time. He says he was there to commemorate the Israeli bombing of the PLO headquarters. But the pictures appear to show him next to a memorial to three people who are also members of the PLO at various times, I think, uh, who have been linked to Black September, the terrorist organisation who were involved in the kidnapping and then subsequently the death of Israeli athletes at the Munich Olympics in 1972. Although the one of the problems with the whole story is I found the real villains of the piece who are the fact checkers at the Morning Star. 
I don't like to have a go at sub-editors because I was a sub-editor for many years and they've saved, I'm sure they've saved your bacon, they've saved my bacon on many occasions. But he referred to wreaths being laid for others killed by Mossad in Paris in... 1992. 1992. And there is no person that description fits, right? There were people killed in 1992 in Tunis, which is the three people we described, or there's another guy who definitely was as far as we understand it, a Black September operative who was killed in Paris a, a different year. But basically, no one can say who Jeremy Corbyn was thinking he was referring to about those other wreaths. And there's a question about whether or not wreaths were laid, but not by me, in the kind of classic political jargon, right? Someone said did a great tweet this week, which is, he should have just said, look, I don't read Arabic. I went there to do this. If I'm accidentally been pictured next to some completely different other commemorative tombstones, then I wouldn't have known. And you'd kind of go... Fair enough. I don't speak Arabic either. That I can see how that would happen. Well, I think part of the kind of odd thing about this incarnation of of Labour's never-ending internal row over anti-Semitism is that actually, I, I think in an odd way, the Morning Star article with its various errors, people have been trying to make it revealing in one direction or another by going, and actually the meaning of this description, which doesn't really refer to anyone, is actually incredibly sympathetic uh, lens or actually reveals deep-seated things about his thinking but actually to be honest i think the analysis of it is just like this is a guy who goes on a visit to some people he's decided is essentially sound doesn't ask very many questions and then comes back and goes oh yeah something happened in 1992 involving uh, mossad in, yeah, you know those, like, you know those lads in mossad they're um, and that is essentially how you end up with repeated associations that cause ructions and distress to many people within and without the political party you lead. That's the bit I find really difficult, is that I don't... It's a sort of demand to kind of see this in isolation, right? You know, But this is the guy who invited people from the IRA into the House of Commons a couple of weeks after the Brighton bombing. It's somebody who went on press TV and said he detected the hand of Israel behind an attack in Egypt. I think it's whatever you, whether you agree with it or not, it's fairly clear that his worldview is that sometimes armed resistance to Western imperialism, as he sees it, is justified. And you know what? I think a, another Labour leader could have kind of made interesting arguments about the need for, you know, the way that the peace process in Northern Ireland inevitably involved people who'd been involved in, in violence over there, the way that Nelson Mandela was convicted of terrorist offences but transformed, you know, South Africa into the country it is today. Like, there are arguments about if you're going to, and which is, he tried to, tries to edge towards, right, these idea that, like, what I'm against is violence, but the only way to pierce is through dialogue. The problem being, obviously, that consistently he meets the anti-Western, anti-colonialist, anti-imperialist side, and he doesn't, he's not there, you know, hugging Netanyahu and saying, like, we've got our differences, Benjamin, but, you know, on this one, I just think we've got to work together. Yeah, I mean, this. Well, I think one of the interesting problems they have, right, is that, as I write in my column this week, Jeremy Corbyn is fundamentally someone whose key bits of his political project, the bits which he will not resile from, are the foreign policy bits, specifically the treatment and condition of people in the global south. However, most of his key allies and the people he trusts are people for whom they broadly share the foreign policy outlook, but they regard it as something that they are willing to throw overboard in order to get to the domestic stuff. But I have a huge amount of sympathy with that. I mean, even as British Prime Minister, your ability to affect the Middle East peace process is extraordinarily limited. Yeah, I think regardless of... How your ability s- to affect schools is rather larger, yeah. right? I think regardless of, of how one feels about that calculation, I think part of the problem they've had this week, and indeed with any where every time these previous associations come up to light, is that 
they kind of do that classic thing that an opposition, I don't know, than a political leadership does when they're faced with a trade-off, which is go, oh, we'll try and kind of do a bit of both. Because from their perspective, I cannot see how they are, like, Corbyn does not want to make the rhetorical and sort of political move necessary to close it down by going, I shouldn't have done it, get thee behind me, old man, I, I renounce these old associations, which means that the only way forward, I think, for them is to try and make a virtue of it, you know, tap into the kind of isolationist stuff that he then was very lucrative for him in the general election and effectively go, I support this for X, Y, Z reason. Uh, because if you don't want to disavow it, you, you have to kind of make it into a, not necessarily a selling point, but you have to be on the front foot. Whereas instead, because you have effectively a school of thought going, nothing to apologize for, and another school of thought going like, I just want this noise to stop. Instead, you kind of end up with this kind of midway liminal state between going, this is bad, we regret doing it, and going, I regret nothing. And so you end up with the kind of three different stories about the wreaths, the various contortions about various associations. Yeah, the idea that the defence of the mural was about free speech, etc., etc. I think it's really difficult because for me, the problem has been, I remember, some, I think it might have been Sarah Dytum contributed to this magazine saying about one of the reasons that the media particularly commentators were quite hostile to Corbyn is that almost their first introduction to him was to being sort of shouted at on social media, right? And I think the experience that you get as somebody who writes about Corbyn for, whether it's a right or a left-wing place, is very different to what you just get as a normal member of the party in sort of aggro terms, which shouldn't colour your view, but inevitably there is a kind of, <gasps> every time you, you write about him. And also I think there is an acknowledgement that he is he dislikes the media, right? And I think he would frame it as the media rather than being particularly hygienic about saying that he like feels one way about the Telegraph or uh, another way about the Times, say. And you really saw that in his interview this week where he was pinned down. And and because of these the, the difficulty of working out exactly who he was talking about in that article, a reporter said, well, hang on, which, which grave specifically are you talking about? And he went, oh, and then rolled his eyes. In a way, in a way, I found it quite relatable because it was clearly a, an, a genuine human emotion. But at the same time, that person is trying to get the most truthful version of the story out, which we don't currently have. We have a confusing narrative. And I think that's really affects his, I think Kate McCann of the Telegraph has written about his, his fractious relationship with the media. I think that's part of the story. I don't, I, I can see why he feels incredibly defensive, but it is at this point really not helping him. So I think, I, I guess I'm significantly less sympathetic because, I mean, so obviously this week we had the like, I would say depressing, but I feel in another way, a part of being depressed by something is being surprised by it. Boris Johnson refusing to answer questions about his insulting column, coming out, offering uh, the tea. The, the tea. Yeah. Now, to be honest, if you're a camera crew desperately trying to get a picture out in the cold and someone offers you tea and you take it, in my view, fine. But don't broadcast, don't broadcast the, pictures. The, the pictures of them of the politician looking warm and folksy because... You'll massively reward and incentivize no comment if people know that you can do that. A lot of this reminds me of the, the discussion around Trump, right? And the, actually the the way that his tweets were just allowed to kind of dominate the news cycle and you just uncritically report them without, you know, just, oh my God, he said another offensive thing without any kind of fact checking. No, not that he said another false thing or like whatever it was that you just, you felt that you just, you'd done your business just by reporting it. And that's the same thing with the Boris thing, right? Is that the very, the fact that he's come outside, is that actually newsworthy? Yeah, exa exactly. Uh, but Man I also, leaves house. I also think that the, the crucial thing where this comes into the kind of Corbyn sigh is that now, 
as as someone who has you know watched and covered Boris Johnson for a long time, and I think if you're the more politically engaged you are, you will notice when you watch that clip the like vague air of menace when he's like, "Have the tea," but but most of broadcast television, what really matters from the perspective of both the producer and indeed the politician in question is the image. And he he's got his kind of like, oh me, I'm a, I'm a lovable shambles, have some tea kind of picture, and this is. This is the thing, right? I think there are there are many, many reasons to be contemptuous of, of political journalism uh, in this country and indeed many others. But the thing I find slightly grating is when people are, have the correct analysis of what's wrong with it, but don't ever then seem to go, ah, oh, but wait a second, some of these levers are incredibly obvious, right? Like, frankly, if, if you just go out and go like, oh, well, this story is a bit of a thing we'll be... I'm going to be kind of affable and lovably granddaddy. It would go away. I find it depressing that that's true. Oh, you I mean find it depress- Yeah. Oh, well, I, I find know, it depressing I, that I Boris the- Johnson gets away with it, but it is nonetheless true. So. If I saw pictures of Corbyn coming out of his house and like putting his arm up in the car to stop to block the shot, and you think, well, I know you're annoyed, but equally well, these people are just doing their job. And actually, part of the job of the media is to scrutinise politicians, even when they don't want to be scrutinised. I, I, but I kind of think. I mean, obviously, people are just doing their job, but I actually think kind of like. To, move it away slightly from the kind of journalist versus the press angle, right? The the voter that matters is some random bloke in spoons or whatever watching the Sky News feed with no sound. Yeah. And then sees this guy snarling and blocking the, the screen. Yeah. I mean, actually, you couldn't say essentially whatever you like because people only see the tickers and things. But the, the snarling is so obviously a bad idea. But obviously, as well as the ongoing, you know, how Labour has responded to it, the question I think we've got a lot this week, and in fact every week, and I feel the question I keep being asked when I am um, asked to talk about it elsewhere or on TV or whatever is, when will this end? Uh, and of course... <laughs> Does it just mean the universe or like life? Well, I mean, the thing is, in an odd way, the, the answer is the same, right? Jeremy Corbyn does not want to disavow the foreign policy connection, but he both doesn't want to disavow it, but he also, at the moment, is choosing not to make an explicit, I am who I am, here's why I believe these things, right? So in the absence of either disavowing or leaning into it, the continual sort of cycle of association will, will continue. He remains hegemonic within the Labour Party, so that doesn't change. And for the most part, Corbyn sceptic MPs have no desire to leave. And so they kind of just sit there being annoyed. I mean, Ian Austin on Twitter had like this tweet today, which was just like, oh, you know, well done, mate. Really sick burn. Where he went, someone went, oh, have you never met anyone you agree with? And he went, well, you know, yeah, it is a difficulty, but I've never flown X number of miles around the world. It's one of those things where it's like, this tweet gets an awful lot less biting when we remember that your current plan is to remain within this political party and make the guy you are subtweeting prime minister. This moron, vote for him Um, so that he can be in charge of our nuclear weapons. Yeah, and actually what both groups have in common is, again, having been faced with a a fairly simple choice, right? In the case of, of Team Corbyn, it's, do you decide to explain and lean into why he's made these foreign policy choices or do you disavow them? And they've kind of gone, maybe we'll kind of do both in a sort of rubbishy way. And then the choice Corbyn skeptics have is if you want to remain in the Labour Party and one day take it back, your path to taking it back goes through the six out of 10 uh, Labour members who voted for him, which thanks to membership churn is probably closer to eight or seven now. Or you leave the party and try and set something up new. 
However, if you want to stay, you're going to have to be a lot nicer about Jeremy Corbyn. And if you want to leave, you are going to have to actually, you know, leave. And instead, they've kind of gone, maybe instead of leaving or trying to persuade people in this entity, we could just kind of sit in the doorway and be really unpleasant. Super bitchy. Can I ask one question? Which is why is the leader's office now also from the Deep South? Because that's the only voice I... I mean, I would say the only voice I know how to do. We got an awful lot of feedback that I, in fact, did not. <laughs> but that's just my default, like, you know, cluing people Folksy into the fact that voice. I'm not myself. But basically, that means then this will go on forever. Right, it but the problem not... is that... I, I mean, I wrote this in The Observer. You know, he, Corbyn sometimes feels like a martyr constantly in search of an oppressor. And the problem is that as soon as... And you mentioned the dread phrase, Corbynism without Corbyn, in your column this week. There was nothing, I think, that that team would like more than some discussion about, like, couldn't we just have the ideology without him? Because at that point, it becomes like, defend Jeremy! I just think the one thing that galvanises that bit of his base more than anything else is the thought that personally he is under attack and needs to be defended. So there is a kind of problem with anybody wanting to have that conversation. I mean, it's a conversation that I think lots and lots of people in Labour and actually the average Labour member is probably kind of up for having. Like they, they probably, I would say, like Corbyn, but could equally well accept an Angela Rayner or, you know, or a Laura Pidcock, you know, from different to different traditions. I don't think there is an enormous... You know, I don't think the entire party would fall apart if if there was a succession, right? I speak to a lot of people who will talk about Corbynism without Corbyn. Uh, you know, trade union officials, ordinary party members, the the odd kind of kind of Corbyn adjacent or Corbyn EMP. Um, I mean, I think it's a mirage for the essential reason that one, this Corbyn's sort of unappreciated success in internal Labour leadership elections is actually that 60% is a lot more ideologically heterodox than you would necessarily think. So were I sitting in the leader's office, I would have absolutely no faith in my ability to carry off a... To ha- a no, I think uh, the anointed a, successor thing is, is, is really hard because there's no one else. And I, again, you put this in your column that brings together someone who can appeal to the Leave voters with their kind of, you know, that hard Brexit, but, but is also impeccably social liberal. And I think that's really true. I just guess my... Yeah, I, I just think when you say Corbynism without Corbyn, then I begin to say, well, well, hang on, what is Corbynism? Because if you mean economic terms, anti-austerity politics, then yeah, I would say that is absolutely going to outlive him, you know, and, and from the point of view of the trade unions, that's what they want, right? They want the Labour Party to have a solidly left-wing jobs protecting, you know, economic policy. If you mean the foreign policy stuff, then I, I don't see that that tradition you know surviving without him because that is as you say his personal obsession and calling card i think things it would nominally it will probably nominally be it nominally both parts would endure right because the the weirdness i mean so let's take say you know the ongoing ira route right the trade unions who have spoken out and said look let's just adopt the full thing are all officially affiliated to the palestine uh, solidarity campaign so they are all, you know, in the same political position. Where if you do worry that Ira will suppress uh, legitimate criticism of Israel, you you are you're, they're all in the same bucket. Mm. Um, now, obviously, some of them just don't believe them. That is a, a worry with Ira, but for others, it is just that they don't care as much. So I think um, I think maybe you are right in the sense as well that the you mentioned that the Saudi uh, immediate scrapping of sales of arms to Saudi Arabia in the Labour Party manifesto very hard for another Labour quote-unquote pragmatic, realist, whatever you want to call it, leader to go, 
I'm actually really keen to we should start selling arms. I'm, I'm, I really want to stake some of my political credibility on selling arms to the incredibly repressive theocratic regime of Saudi Arabia. Well, and in some ways that dynamic played itself out in the last election. There was a huge amount of appetite in the Labour grassroots and indeed among Labour MPs to go, we don't like this and we want to stop it. And within the trade unions who represent people in those industries, there was a very strong awareness that, well, this represents a lot of our members. But also no one wants to be the person who stands up and goes, excuse me, actually, I care more about these jobs than I do about what these bombs are used for. Right. right? And Yemeni children. No one wants to be that person in the Clause 5 meeting. So some of it will be more pertinent. But I also just think in some ways, like the matter does not arise. There will not be Corbynism without Corbyn because... Jeremy Corbyn is going to lead the Labour Party into the next election. I'm not sure how much it's that people necessarily want to believe, yeah, or want to be able to go, oh, look, here's a unifying threat. Because obviously for so much of the time there has been a unifying threat, I think it's just an ingrained part of a lot of people's behaviour. Yeah, I guess there's something they don't know how to feel about Corbyn if they don't feel protective about him. Um, but weirdly, not so much when the I suppose, I don't know, it's really odd that of all the kind of threats to Jeremy Corbyn, the Tories don't necessarily figure high up. But anyway, we've wildly overrun our time, so we'll have to... Who knows, Stephen, this round may even come up again another week. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. And in this week's uh, Anything But Brexit, or I Can't Believe It's Not Brexit, or whatever it is we have decided to call this segment, we are discussing schools, and we are joined by uh, Laura McInerney, who is a former editor of Schools Week, uh, Guardian Education columnist, and basically knows everything there is to know about schools. Hello. Hello, thank you for joining us. So in maybe like five to ten words, tell us everything that you know about schools. Uh, schools don't have enough money, and they don't have enough teachers. Wow, okay. Um, well. So how, how much, because obviously as well as there being public spending cuts across the piece, there's also been a great deal of reform and change coming from the centre towards schools. So how much is the lack of teachers about lack of money and how much is it about the various changes to education policy over the last decade or so? Sure. So actually, the teacher shortage is, is possibly not related to either of those. We're in this really weird demographic cycle at the moment. So there are not many young people in the country between the age of about 16 and 21 and, and kind of they're moving through. So there's a demographic dip. And that's one of the reasons that universities are clambering all over themselves trying to get students in. Why did no one have sex in the late 90s? Yeah, turns out we were all too busy dancing into the Spice Girls. The music was too good. Yeah, Y2K exactly. maybe? 
Uh, yeah, everyone was really worried about that bug yeah. taking out the hospitals. Um, and then they all started having children in 20, uh, 2010, roughly. So we have loads and loads of children who are in primary school and we don't have many children um, coming out of secondary. And new graduates are kind of the cannon fodder of the teaching profession because teachers do leave pretty rapidly. The statistics have got slightly worse, but they've always been bad. So we now have one in three teachers leaves within five years and half leave within 10 years in the profession. So if you don't have tons of 21-year-olds to kind of throw into classrooms and pick off the weakest, then you end up with a, te- a teacher shortage quite rapidly. Plus add to that over the last few years, high retirement rates, and you end up with a teacher shortage. We're also losing lots of teachers abroad. So British schools are doing amazing. One of the few economic successes of the last few years is British schools abroad. So they're opening up in countries all over the world and they're sucking our teachers away. And at the same time, we've got loads and loads of pupils and those pupils are about to hit secondary school. So we desperately need secondary teachers. And unfortunately, they're all in Dubai on tax-free salaries or they don't exist because people were too busy dancing to the Spice Girls to have children. Right, that's really interesting. Now, obviously, the other thing in that baby boom is going to great is you can put primary school children in porter cabins a lot more easily. It becomes a lot more difficult and acute with secondary school people. So presumably there is also quite a large incoming bill for new school infrastructure. Well, you'd think, but this is where your previous point comes in. So because there's been a lot of reform in the last eight years or so, so when Michael Gove got in in 2010, he changed the school system and he brought in these academies, which are essentially self-governing schools. They're not really overseen. In fact, they're not at all overseen by the local authority. It makes school place planning now much more difficult because councils can compel their own schools to expand or to take in extra classes. They can stick a porter cabin on the playground, but they can't do that with academies. And although very few primary schools are academies, it's only about 25%. The majority of secondary schools are academy, about 70%. And so you either need to build lots of schools, which is actually not very clever because we're going back into a dip again. So what you don't want to do is build loads of schools and then in another 10 years, you don't need them and you're closing them down. What you want to do is compel the current ones to expand. And now local councils don't have the power to do that. So in terms of the reform picture in the last decade, the the academisation programme is obviously the big one. Building schools for the future, how much impact did they, that creation of that and then the premature scrapping of that have? So the scrapping of building schools for the future, which was the the new Labour programme of rebuilding really beautiful, very expensive schools in areas of deprivation, had the legacy of leaving really quite terrible buildings in some poor parts of the country. But it wasn't a place planning issue. Throughout the 2000s, we actually didn't need schools. What it did do was it diverted a lot of that cash into free schools. And those have been built in areas with place demand. But for several years, they were sort of scattergunned. Sometimes they've been built in areas with places, sometimes they've not. And even now, the way you get new schools built is still very, very fragmented. And the money sometimes goes to the right places and sometimes doesn't. So we've been hearing a lot about slightly miserable public sector workers on this podcast the last couple of weeks. On the sort of misery index, where are teachers at the moment? How What is morale like at, at the moment? Uh, that's a tricky one because I've... Because you've got, got an app, haven't you? This app called Teacher Tap where you do like loads and loads of surveys and find out weird things like about what photocopying needs they have and how yeah. many of them take marking home at weekends and stuff like that, right? Right. So we, every day on Teacher Tap, which is, as you say, it's a free survey app for teachers. It's fantastic. Anyone can go on and every day we ask three questions. Two and a half thousand teachers currently answer. And we found out all kinds of stuff around um, the hours they work, which are extraordinary. I mean, teachers start work really early and they finish 
11 o'clock still marking. It's, it's bizarre. But in terms of morale, you know, they're very divided. So we find that it's hard to talk about teachers as an entity. You know, lots of people are still very energized. Well, there are loads of them. What, there are half, half a million. million. Yeah. yeah. So they are very, they're, they're very, you know, they're very different in their approaches. And I've been in education for 12 years and I've probably never heard of a time when everyone in teaching was like, woo, we've got the greatest job and great paying conditions. Um, what I will say is that the, the pay cap, and the fact that salaries have been low now for or kept low for about eight years is starting to wind people up. Graduates in particular are seeing their starting salaries go up and teachers have stayed very low. And because we've got a teacher shortage, we don't have many graduates. We desperately need new teachers. It's very difficult if you see a starting salary of 23,000 for teachers outside of London versus, say, 28,000 for a supermarket graduate scheme. You know, we are losing people to supermarket graduate schemes. So you mentioned the pay cap there, which is going to be, is when the process are being lifted. I can't remember exactly what the settlement for teachers is, but it's it's still under inflation, but it's more than obviously that they has been for a decade now. Yeah, and there's a weird thing with teachers. So uh, 28 years ago, the government got rid of union pay negotiations because they said we don't want to have this endless cycle of strikes. So we will have an independent review body and they will tell us what is fair. And for the first time this year, they did actually say there should be an increase. So for the last few years, they've only said an, infl- an inflation or no increase. And this year, they said 3.5%. So the government gulped. And um, they haven't agreed to it. So it's extraordinary. After 28 years, they're saying, no, guys, we're not going to go with the independent review body. And they do have the powers to do that, but it's it's always been, you just don't do it. It's a gentleman's agreement. And what they've said is 3.5% for new teachers in the first five to six years, 2% for teachers who are more experienced, and only 1.5% for senior leaders and head teachers. But that money, nonetheless, has got to come from somewhere, and there's no new money being made available. So where is it going to come from, Some new money is being covered uh-huh. by the Department for Education. Now, it's still got to come from the Department of Education's budget. So they've It's not cut... coming from Treasury, right? No. Yeah. So they've cut a bunch of things like the Teaching and Learning Improvement Fund. So that was money that would go to schools to help improve learning if they were struggling. A clever thing they've done, do you remember the 50 million quid for grammar schools expansions? So that was to help these grammar schools expand as part of the manifesto commitment and so on and they've turned around to grammar schools and said you can't have money from another fund to help your buildings so normally if you apply to the capital improvement fund to save your roof for example grammar schools will no longer be able to access that fund so really they've also nicked 50 million quid from grammar schools that all goes into the pay packet for teachers and then schools have to cover one percent of the pay rise from their previous budgets as well so that means sort of you know Exercise books for year eight will be cut so that Mr. Jones can have some extra cash in his wages. So one of the ways that governments traditionally deal with uh, staff shortfalls is immigration. How much does the wider sort of package of immigration policies since 2014, how much has that impacted on teacher retention and teacher recruitment? It's huge in some parts of the country. So, for example, there's a number of head teachers I've spoken to out in Essex who um, are really slammed by the £35,000 salary. So if you want to keep migrant workers for longer, they've got to be earning £35,000. And so you can get teachers in from, say, Australia. But to keep them, you would have to put them onto a senior leader's wage packet. And schools already can't afford the wages and can't afford this increase. So they've been particularly badly hit by that. The other thing we're starting to see in teacher recruitment is um, we want, or the government wants, every child to learn modern foreign language to GCSE by 2025. 
Getting modern foreign language teachers in this country has always been difficult. Getting them now that there is nervousness from Spain, from Germany, from, you know, from teachers in Italy. They don't want to come and train to be teachers here. They don't want to move here in the same ways that they have done before because they're worried about Brexit. So it's having two massive impacts, which in amongst the teacher shortage domestically make things even worse. We've got, we've got GCSE and A-level results coming out this week. How different is that picture? Because you were talking to me earlier about the idea that they're going to be, they're not, you know, grade inflation is being fought in a really systematic way. So mm-hmm. how much is, is that, Anna, you, how much change is that kind of made to the system? Yeah, so I, I recently had, uh, someone was showing me some debating material and they were starting off with exam results have inflated every year. And I said, actually, they haven't inflated at all since 2013. So please don't begin (laughs) with that sentence. And most people don't realise that, that actually the government brought in some steps. Michael Gove, one of the good things he did, brought in some steps to say that GCSEs and A-levels need to be comparable year on year so that when exam specifications change, so this year we get GCSE grades go from being A star to G to being oh, nine no. to one. But then nine is the best. Yeah, and that is so that in future, if children a, do turn out, you can to turn be, it up to eleven. Yeah, if they turn out to be smarter, and we can prove that, then we will bring in a ten grade or an eleven grade, and so on. But what shouldn't happen is when you bring in a new um, A level or GCSE, what you shouldn't see is big dramatic changes in the grades. And so uh, Ofqual, who are the exams regulator, make sure that doesn't happen. And that's important because in in the early 2000s, when we moved to AS grades, and there was a sudden shift around in maths grades, for example, and that meant that everyone stopped doing maths for a little bit and they had to shift about and change it. So um, they're trying to stop that kind of shock happening again. And one final question, which is, is there anything in schools policy that you don't think gets talked about enough and you're desperate to talk about? I think we don't talk enough about children that get excluded. Now, that interestingly, that has come onto the agenda, and I think the Education Secretary and the Schools Minister are talking about it more. But we haven't really grasped the fact that about 50,000 young people each year are educated in alternative provision. Why are they there when there's only around 6,000 exclusions going on? So, for example, you've got children with medical needs, you've got children who are pregnant sometimes who are put into uh, alternative provision. Haven't talked about the fact that children in alternative provision are twice as likely to be taught by temporary teachers, twice as likely to be taught by unqualified teachers. And, um, you know, a lot of prisoners, I think it's something like 60% of prisoners were excluded from school. So, If we look in alternative provision, we can see our pipeline to prison. And yet those children are twice as likely to be taught by teachers without the right qualifications or who are not committed to the job full term. And I think that's something that some MPs are starting to recognise. But there's no simple solution. And you don't get, you know, no one gets bonus points for knocking on a door and saying someone else's child is being excluded and is vulnerable to becoming a prisoner can we can you help us do something about it everyone wants to know what their child is is going to have and they don't want to think that their child is going to be in prison they want to think their child is going to a grammar school and that's why you get the conservatives pushing on grammars actually we do need to talk about these kids they cost a lot of money long term thank you very much that was laura mcinerney and the app is called teacher tap which is spelled like as if you tap on it but two p's because it's also an app yeah, it's a great see what bit of marketing did. by us. Absolutely, see what you did there. Thanks, Laura. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Helen Lewis, and my co-presenter Stephen Bush. We're recorded by India Bork and produced by Caroline Crampton. Our theme music is by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Why not follow us on Twitter? We're at Stephen with a PHKB and at Helen Lewis. 
Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.